0: I think you know this is this has been a a difficult year for a lot of you. Um, great deal, great deal of suffering. Uh, a number of the one, these lilies are are placed in honor of people who passed away in the last year. Um, and so, as I think and and have thought about what we have been through as a church, and and the people we've lost the things that have happened, um, I guess I came to Easter with a particular thought about the suffering of Christ, and also because this year we didn't have a uh, a good Friday service. I thought it might be it doesn't make much sense to do Sunday without thinking about friday so uh i I decided that um, I wanted to uh I wanted to ask us to think about what does Jesus' suffering mean when we think about the resurrection? Because uh, we suffer, as we talked about. We've talked about the last two weeks at the end of James. The book of James ended with, here's what to do with your suffering. And we talked about how suffering is. And, and Good Friday is about Jesus suffering in a, a profound way. So, <clears throat> I'm sure most of you have heard the, the, the parable that Jesus tells about, you know, if if a, a shepherd, the kind of shepherd that Jesus is, is uh, one that would leave 99 sheep in the wilderness and go and look after, uh, go and look and find the one sheep who has uh, fallen into a pit or has uh, wandered off and, and is alone and is suffering out there and probably is going to die. That this is the kind of Jesus, this is the kind of Savior that we praise. This is the kind of Lord that we exalt, is the kind who would leave 99 and go after the one. That is, in some ways, my, my sermon today is, is about Jesus. If we live in human experience, right, we live in suffering, we live in sin, we live in shame. We live in humiliation. We live in bitterness. We also live in moments of adulation, right? We live in moments of, of great celebration, but tempered by the suffering that is around us. And so if, if that's where we are, if we are lost sheep living in this pain, then that will, is where Jesus was bound to go. That's, that's why I had us read Hebrews chapter 2 today. Right? He became like us in every respect. For what purpose would he go down that road? So I want to I actually uh, highlight that. Jesus is Just thinking about Jesus' last week of life, really. We talked about the triumphal entry last week, right? This moment of adulation. Jesus even says, uh, when the Pharisees say in Luke, uh, tell these people to shut up, right? And Jesus is like, if they don't talk, I tell you the truth. The stones themselves would ring out in praise, so he has this very human experience of, of celebration of popularity, and it is immediately followed up with tears at the next line is that he he sees Jerusalem and he weeps over it in Luke yeah the you you actually have all the scripture references and and all the things we 're going to go through today in your worship folder. <clears throat> And then he, he enters the temple and he becomes angry. Has anybody ever been angry? Anybody? <laughs> a time or two, perhaps. He gets angry in the temple and he turns over the tables and he he makes a a, a whip out of horsehair and uh, and he he drives the the temple uh, market people out, saying, "You you turned my father's house into a." Um, a den of robbers he pushes them out. And then he spends the next couple of days, we don't really know exactly how long, uh, in in the temple um, having arguments and being d- deceived. Right? It says that, that the, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees are all trying to deceive him into slipping up, into doing something wrong. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you. Someone was intentionally out to get you. You ever had that kind of suffering? Or someone was uh, bent on arguing with you and proving you wrong, finding you wherever you are to ask you a question, to have an argument. If any of you have raised teenagers, you know what that's like, I'm sure. I, I remember... I remember being like that with my parents. If I could just get them to slip up in their words, then I could get them to do what I wanted them to do. If I could just win the argument. <laughs> and Jesus uh, has frustration, right? His frustration over, over all kinds of things. I'm going to be honest with you. I can't remember what he's frustrated about in Mark, so I'm going to look it up. <laughs> what was on my mind? Mark 11, 11. Oh, <laughs> um, fig tree that wouldn't uh, bear fruit for him. <laughs> it's actually it's a really funny story. Um, anyway, he gets this frustration, right? Has anybody ever been? This is like his most irrational frustration that you can possibly find. The fruit tree—it's not even its not even fig season, and he gets mad at the fig tree. Has anybody been mad because uh, they didn't get food when they wanted food? <laughs> right. And then, and then another thing that he does uh, is he has this family dinner with with his disciples, and this is more on the positive side, right? Uh, he says in Luke, one of, my, one of my favorite lines in the Passion narrative, in the, the narrative of Jesus' final week, is, is when he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this with you, my friends. So he has this kind of family dinner experience. Some of my favorite childhood memories are, are of um, eating dinner, not just with my family, but with like when we would have church friends over for dinner at my house. And we would laugh and we would talk play games and so if i'm a if i'm a lost sheep jesus has has gone after me for all that i am right he's come become like me in all respects not just the bad respects but the good as well and then uh anxiety my goodness anybody anywhere uh <clears throat> Ever experience anxiety? right? In, in Luke, it says uh, that he actually sweats blood. He becomes so anxious. The other, the other ones, um, I think it's in Matthew where he says to the disciples, I'm, I'm grieved even to the point of like death or, or something like that. You know? So there's this intense, intense stress and anxiety over what the cup he's about to drink you know, uh, Abby and I went for a walk yesterday and she asked me if I would talk to a stranger about his yard. And I felt intense anxiety, right? (laughs) Who knows what I would be like before the cross. Um, and I was like, I don't think I can do that. Um, and, uh, and I didn't, um, (laughs) oh, I, I skipped, uh, there, sorry, it was on the wrong. Um, the, uh, this anxiety has come into my anxiety he knows what it's like to be anxious to be stressed if that's the the crevice that've I've fallen into he's gone, he's gone there he's betrayed right I mean even I mean the betrayal just is this dark cloud that hangs over the whole last week right or the, the disciple or the, the authors of the gospels they'll hint at, at, at all these different moments that it's the betrayal is is brewing in Judas's life, and so that Jesus actually says to uh, to to him, "Somebody that I'm going to dip my hand in the cup with is also going to betray me this very night." So that that betrayal that's hanging over him. I don't know if you've ever been betrayed or been suspicious of betrayal. I know that you have. Many of you have talked to me about the kind of betrayals that have happened to you. And so if that is the pit that you've stumbled into, if that is the pit that you have caused yourself to fall into, if that is the pit you have chosen to fall into, he has gone to it and there to get you. He has become like us in every respect. And so the malice in Judas's heart is betrayal. But then perhaps even worse is that those disciples who who loved him, believed in him, who had not lost heart, when the soldiers show up, they run away. I gave you the wrong scripture reference last week, actually. I told you it was Mark 14, 15. I'm sure that really bothered you. Um, You all thought about it all week, just like I did. Um, (laughs) Mark 14, 50 through 51, where it says all of them left him. All of them. All of them left him. Falsely accused. Surely none of you have ever been falsely accused. I remember uh, I was in second grade, and uh, Mrs. Miller was my teacher. and Mrs. Miller was one of my least favorite teachers that I ever had. She's not a very patient woman. Um, she's uh, <clears throat> she would say all the time that she enjoyed a good scolding. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, this was uh, <laughs> a little hard for a second grader to know what she was talking about, but she she made sure you knew. Um, so one day, uh, I I took my lunch every single week, every single day of class. Okay, uh, every single day of school, all the way until like all the way through high school, I packed my lunch. And uh, and second grade grade in particular, I I would take my lunch and I would leave it in the cafeteria after I'd eat my lunch. And then we would all go and play at recess. Then after recess was over, the rest of my class that had eaten at school would go and line up. And they had to get in these lines and they weren't dismissed to go back to their classes until the line was like straight and quiet and all that sort of stuff. And so I never did that because I always had to go back to the cafeteria and get my lunch box. Well, on one particular day, uh, all of the boys in my class decided that they were going to be like really rowdy and make fun of this one particular girl in my class. Okay, And it got so bad and so out of hand that all of the boys in my class were, were told that they were not allowed to have recess for the whole rest of the week or for a whole week the next week and that uh, they would have to sit on the curb and watch all the other kids play. And so I come back into my classroom, carrying my lunchbox, having gone to the cafeteria and missed all of this and completely oblivious when Mrs. Miller uh, laid down the punishment, right? You boys, all of you will now have to miss uh, a week of recess. And I went, I wasn't there. I wasn't there. I was not involved in it. And she got angriest I'd ever seen her, right? And, uh, and so I persisted because I am a persistent person when it comes to these sorts of things. And uh, even as a second grader, to the point where I got two weeks on the curb because I persisted so much. And, uh, and so I sat there the second – the first week I sat on the curb watching along with all the other boys and watched everybody play. And then the second week I sat there all by myself when I hadn't even been there, when the sin was committed. You see, we serve a Savior who we can pray to in those moments with confidence that he understands. When we talk about having a relationship with Jesus, the relationship is not with some aloof God, some God that's out there. It is with a God who has come to the pit, has come to us, who knows it has actually been pierced by it. The next thing is that he's denied by a friend, right? Denied by Peter. Um, another story from my childhood that I was thinking about this week is uh, I, I was a very, very anxious child and uh, had a really hard time with social interaction. And there was this uh, kid in my class, his name was Joe, and I had uh, we played baseball together, and I asked him to come over to my house and, and like for like a play date or whatever. You didn't call it that, of course, because that was like not what you want to say. Right. You don't go up to another boy and say, well, you want to come over to my house for a play date? Um, that's dangerous. <clears throat> in I think this was fourth grade, if I remember correctly. And uh, so anyway, he uh, he said, yeah, you know, he wants to come over to my house and, and we like play catch in the backyard or something. And. um and that was the first time I'd done that during the school year. This was like spring. Okay. So I'd gone the whole school year without like inviting any, anybody over to my house ever. Cause it was terrifying. And so I, I put myself out there and he was coming over to my house and, uh, and there was this girl that he liked in class, in the, our class. And, uh, it was choir, uh, which was my least favorite class to begin with. So I was already in like a dark cloud of, of pain, <laughs> just being in choir. And, uh, and he was behind me on the risers, and I heard he, was, he had worked for a long time to be able to stand next to this girl that he liked, um, inquired, like, move over and switch places anyway. So he's standing next to her, and she said, you're not, I could hear, you're not really going over to Matt Eagles' house, are you, today? And he said, no, 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 I would never do that. Why would I hang out with him? <clears throat> so... uh, I went from my typical lip-syncing uh, strategy inquire to just. <laughs> All right, that seems rather funny now. But to be denied by a friend in real life, <laughs> real life, adult life, can be some of the most painful things in your in your existence when you see those relationships break down. I believe it's in the in the book of Luke, where where um, maybe it's John, uh, where it actually says that that Jesus, right after Peter um, denies him for the third time, Jesus looks him in the eye, right? Because the reason that Peter has to deny him is that Peter has curiously, out of curiosity, gone and followed Jesus to where he's being tried, right? So he's there as Jesus is going undergoing the interrogation and it says i i i wish i would have looked it up but it says that jesus looks him in the eye and then peter weeps bitterly this pain jesus knows it and then and then now we get into some of the more the more physical pains right because after he's tried um actually before he's tried the jews mock him and beat him in fact they put a uh, blindfold on him, on him and they beat him and they say prophesy to us who hit you and they spit upon him prophesy to us who hit you if you're really a prophet then the next thing uh that happens well next suffer- object of suffering that i don't know that jesus cared about necessarily doesn't doesn't say it but i would certainly be something that would bother me is that uh Pilate's like, hey, I got this tradition of releasing a prisoner to you once a year, so how about this, how about Jesus rather than this Barabbas guy? Um, And they all say, no, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Who we're led to believe is the worst of the worst, right? Not someone that they should have wanted. Not chosen. Have any of you ever not been chosen? Then he's flogged. Flogging is not like the horsehair whip that Jesus used in the temple. The Romans wove in stone and glass to their whips. They were all often uh, people were sent to sentenced to forty lashes minus one because uh, a good Roman soldier prided himself on being able to kill someone with forty lashes. And so the point of flogging was to uh, excoriate people, not to kill them. So they would give them 39 lashes, one shy of what would be presumably death. And so Jesus is flogged. Then he's humiliated. He's stripped naked. And they put a crown of thorns on his head. And they mock him with putting a purple robe around him and calling him the king of the Jews. This is actually, uh, I don't know, you buy things on the internet and they tell you that certain things are true and you don't really know. But uh, supposedly this was uh, made in Bethlehem with uh, some kind of special rose bush uh, that has very, very long thorns. Um, So I'm just going to pass it around yeah. I imagine that none of you have been humiliated in quite that kind of fashion. But I bet. I bet you've had humiliating moments. The next thing that happens uh, in terms of suffering is that they crucify him. Of course, one nail in each wrist And one nail um, through his feet. Again, a Roman nail would have been sharper than this. Obvious reasons why it's not so sharp. Um, And it would have been a little longer. But uh, it gives you a sense. (laughs) The Romans actually, um, they're... Nails were pretty uh, precious so they would always take their nails back after the person had died If we really believe that Jesus is God isn't it remarkable Isn't it remarkable that his skin could be pierced like ours isn't it remarkable to think that he didn't just come for our false accusations. He didn't just run uh, to our doubts, to our shame. But to think that he would let himself be pierced so that he could come and get us. The next thing that happens if, is if that weren't enough, as he's derided on the cross, where they mock him and say, if you're really the son of God, why don't you just come down off that cross? The, sin, the uh, thief on the cross next to him derides him as well and heaps insults upon him, as, as the authors of the gospel say. And then another one in Luke says the other one defends him. So there's just this bright spot of human contact during the crucifixion. And then he's robbed, right? In in John 19 it says it says that they they took his clothing and they cast lots for it. And then he's thirsty. Who knows what kind of thirst it would have been. And then, you see, we suffer, at least I think we suffer because of, of alienation from God. Right? That all of these things happen to us. This this suffering place that we live in is, is the result of our broken relationship with God. Because the the curse that is laid out in uh, In Genesis um, 4, right, 3 or 4, the curse that is laid out, it's, it's predicated on this idea that our relationship with God has been broken. That our sin separates us from his protection. That our sin separates us from the shadow of his wings. That our sin separates us from him so that we can find ourselves humiliated, we can find ourselves accused, we can find ourselves at odds with people around us, because his presence isn't there to protect us, that kind of presence. The relationship is broken. And so when he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It reminds me of um, uh, 1 Corinthians where it says, He who knew no sin became sin. So that he would even go into the absence of God for us. He would even be cut off from the Father for us. If that's where the sheep went, that's where he'll go. If that's where the sheep went, that is where he go. he will go. And then finally, finally he dies. He breathes his last. So is there any place in your life that's not good enough for him? Is there any place in your life that is so dark that you can say, no, no, Jesus, don't come here. Surely the The Savior who would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Surely he is good enough for that. Surely he is trustworthy for your pain. Whatever it is, your anxiety, your doubts, your fears, surely he has gone there. My, my, you know, in, in seminary and in college and such, they always say your sermon should have like a one sentence takeaway. Um, I never really pay attention to that. I probably should. <laughs> but uh, this, this particular week I wrote one because I know uh, you, you have to see it laid out. The point of my sermon is not to make you bask in the suffering of Christ. It's not to make you wallow in the shame. It's, it's that Christ entered our experience of death. Now, death encapsulates all this, I've, that I've laid out, all of the suffering, all of the pain, including the breathing his last. All of it, he enters into our experience that we might join him in his life now and ever after. You see, the, the alienation, the fear of death, as, as uh, Hebrews puts it, the fear of condemnation, the fear of hell. Jesus goes in to hell on our behalf. That when we put ourselves in him, when we put our trust in him, when we pray to him, we call to him, he can save us. He can give us life in the midst of our struggle. He can give us life in the midst of our sorrow. He can give us life in the midst of our alienation. He can give us life. And that life is incorruptible. It will live on forever after. It is not subject to decay. It is not subject to decay. So Christ has entered into our experience. He has gone to whatever pit we found ourselves in, whatever pit we've chosen for ourselves, whatever sorrow, he has gone and he has proved himself. Here is the resurrection. He has proved himself bigger and greater than our pit. Bigger and greater than our sorrow, bigger and greater than our suffering. He has proved himself worthy to stand over it and say, I can reign over this. So when you find yourself in grief, when you find yourself in sorrow, look to him. Look to him who reigns victoriously. Look to him who has beat death and put it in its own grave. This is from uh, Romans chapter 6, thinking about the meaning of the resurrection. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, we put our faith in him, we enter into his death. Our sin is killed. The effect of our sin, the consequence of our sin is put to death in him. How can we who die go on living in it, died to sin, go on living in it? Do you know, not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death. What if that were the end of the story? We'd all just cry and go home. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of of the father so we too might walk in newness of life when you face your addiction when you face your pain when you face the sin you can't run away from when you face the sorrow when you face the aloneness when you face being deserted you have a god that you can pray to who knows how to give you new life in the midst of For we have been united with him in a death like his. We will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. that last week of his life it's like he's reaching every finger every all of his everything that he can get as far as he can reach he's getting into all of the human mire all of the human dust and he's saying put it on my shoulders put it on my shoulders put it on my shoulders and i will take the consequence I will take the grave ending of it all. I will put it on my shoulders and I will let it die. And then after three days, I'll stand with my foot on top of it. Christ entered our experience of death that we might join him in his life. Now and ever after. When we sing Christ the Lord is risen today, it is not just an idea that's out there. It's a thing that should and can be alive, alive in us in the darkest of valleys. A light that sees us through to the other side. An incorruptible life in the spirit. For death and suffering have no dominion over him. So wherever you are, whatever you face, look to the God who knows you. He's there. Too often we let shame convince us that we've run beyond the reach. That's utter lie. He is there. He knows the way. He can Be and is victorious over whatever suffering we can offer him. Our sin, our sorrow. Christ the Lord is risen. He is risen. Let me say it again He is risen. Thank you. Let's pray. God, this is a, a message that is ever on my heart because, because you've been so faithful to me. You've been big enough for every sorrow and every every sin that I've lobbed at you and at others, and at myself you have proven. You have proven that you are bigger than it. You've proven your victory in my life. I, I I am nothing without your resurrection, God. And so but help us live into that new life, that new life that you have every day, every moment for us, no matter what we go through, no matter where we wander, no matter what we are doing. Help us to reach our hand out to you and put our faith, our trust in your resurrection, that you are victorious, that you can and will reign over whatever we offer you. Make us new in your spirit now, tomorrow, the next day, and we praise you. We praise you that this story doesn't end with our death here on earth. We praise you that you you will hide us in the shadow of your wing and protect us from the consequences of sin. On the other side of life, God, that we have this trust and this hope that we shall live with you forever. How marvelous is your victory. It's beyond my words. We praise you. We adore you. Help us to live in you and in your victory.